You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a paper from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. This online workshop re-examined ancient perceptions of nature, power and power over nature to better understand our current environmental crisis. The workshop, which was organised by Matthew Mandich and Giacomo Savani, took place on the 26th of February 2021. This episode features a paper by Constanza Scheiman from the University of Amsterdam. Her lecture, Animals Out of Place, Organising and Criticising Animal Hunts in Late Antiquity, was introduced by Patty Baker from Virginia Tech. A video of this lecture, including the slides used by the speaker, is available on the UCD Humanities Institute's YouTube channel. I'll introduce our second speaker for this session. It's uh, Costanza Schiemann. Constanza is a PhD candidate at the University of Amsterdam, where she researches on animal hunts as public entertainment in late antique Eastern Empire. Before her time in Amsterdam, she studied at history and economics in Mannheim and the history of specialization and with a history of specialization in ancient history at Heidelberg and Paris. Throughout her studies, the cultural history of the ancient world has been her main research interest, taking clues from historical anthropology and human and human and animal studies along the way. Today, Constanza will speak to us about animals out of place, organizing and criticizing animal hunts in late antiquity. Okay, thank you, Constanza, and welcome. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me and for giving me the opportunity to present one small aspect of uh, my PhD project on animal hunts in late antiquity. Um, yeah, I've titled my presentation Animals Out of Place and animals can be considered to be out of place or in the wrong place in a lot of situations. Animals in the home, in zoos or circuses, in livestock production or animals in the city viewed through different lenses, through the lens of a pet holder, an animal liberationist or a farmer. All of these placements potentially create a conflict. An important distinction to make is whether or not the animal is at its assigned space according to humans or whether it is transgressing it. An elephant on a boat can be in place when under the control of human handlers. A polar bear in the city out of place when he is transgressing his natural habitat in search of food. Again, depending on which perspective one takes, a kept bear with a muzzle and a leash in St. Petersburg is either in place or out of place. The bear is out of its natural habitat, but within the control of humans. The same holds true for late antique animal hands, as depicted here with a bunch of bears on this relief uh, from Zerdika. In my paper, I want to interrogate different late antique perspectives on animals in and out of place in the context of animal hunts. First, from a profane perspective, which simply means source, I will be using sources that are not explicitly Christian, and then from a Christian perspective. I have um, structured my talk that, I've, that I'm going to first talk about conflicts arising from um, hunting, catching, and transporting animals, so everything that goes into uh, supplying animals for animal hunts. 
then I will talk about the concept of animal, animals out of place, which is, of course, um, based on Mary Douglas' uh, meta out of place. And then I want to turn my attention to the Christian sources and the Christian critique of animal hunts. The fifth century, so to zoom in into the picture that I just showed, this relief uh, from the fifth century from Zerdika, um, today's Sofia uh, in Bulgaria, illustrates well what we talk about when we talk about late antique animal hunts. Several scenes are shown at all at once, likely depicting a whole day's worth of program. Most of the scenes involve bears. We see a bear mauling a human in the top left corner here, a bear charging at a human right next to it, um, a bear confronted with a human fighter between a revolving wooden door right here. And um, in the bottom two corners, there are bears attacking bulls. In the middle, a bear is confronting a human fighter and uh, likely a wooden uh, replica of a crocodile. And here a bear is charging um, at a wild, at a game animal, maybe a doe. Um, typical for late antique animal hunts, compared to the early and time period period is that they are no longer linked to gladiator fights, gladiator fights, but that they are presented as standalone shows. In contrast to gladiator fights, which fell out of fashion in the fourth century, animal hunts continue to be popular up until mid sixth century AD. The cultural practice of animal hunts led to various forms of interactions between humans and animals. The most spectacular one being the actual confrontation between human fighters and wild animals in the arena. In preparing these fights, animals had to be hunted, captured, and then transported from their natural habitat into the urban spaces. This could lead to various sorts of conflicts. And the sources that I want to present uh, in the next part of my presentation um, suggest as much. So the first one is a poem from the sixth century um, poet Luxorius, who writes about an amphitheater built on a country estate near the sea um, in Vandal, North Africa. And he writes, the countryside marvels at the triumphs of the amphitheater and the forest notices that strange white beasts are there. The many farmers look at new struggles while plowing and the sailor sees, the sailor sees varied entertainments from the sea. The fertile land loses nothing. The plants grow in greater abundance while all the white beasts fear their fates here. In the last line, Luxorius alludes to the building of the amphitheater being beneficial to the farmers of the region, as the animals that would potentially eat their crops or destroy farmland are now hunted and captured for the arena where they meet their rightful fate. The same sentiment that animals, that animal hunts represent a benefit to farmers by relieving them from animal threats is echoed in a passage from Libanius from the mid fourth century. In an effort to persuade a friend in Phoenicia to provide him with bears for animal hunts in Antioch, Libanius implies that capturing the bears additionally relieves the local farmers of danger. He writes, make his, uh, he's referring to his own cousin, make his civic duty a brilliant one for us by the fierceness of the bears and by one and the same action, free your farmers from fear. In a law issued in AD, 414, the emperors Honorius and Theodosius explicitly allow provincials to kill wild animals in order to protect themselves without having to fear repercussions. 
Apparently, hunters who captured wild animals to sell them profitably for animal hunts had people persecuted for killing their precious commodities before they got to them. By the way, the law is worded. We can assume that it was a group of local provincials who sent a complaint to the court. The emperor's re response was as follows. We allow everyone the right to kill lions and we permit no one at any time to fear malicious persecution thereof. Therefore, for the safety of our provincials necessarily shall take precedence over our amusements. The law tells us something about the everyday relationship of the rural population with wild animals. The danger of intruding animals that posed a threat to the physical health of humans was much more prevalent. Here, capturing animals for animal hunts actually stands in conflict with relief for the local populations as they are restricted and reacting directly to threats because of the interests of commercial hunters. Another law from AD 417 concerning the animal hunts appears to be a reaction to a complaint by the governor of the province of Euphrates, the capital of which was Hieropolis. And it reads, through the lamentation of the office staff of the governor of Euphrates, we learn that those persons who by the ducal office staff are assigned to the task of transporting wild beasts remain instead of seven or eight days, three or four months in the city of Hieropolis, Contrary to the general rule of delegations, and in addition to the expenses for such a long period, they also demand cages, which no custom permits to be furnished. So on their way to their final destination, uh, the animals could also provoke and create conflict. Here, their transitional presence in the city of Hieropolis leads to complaints on financial grounds, as fodder and cages were demanded, but one could also imagine that it would have an unsettling effect on the city's population having wild animals housed close by for months. So I now want to return to the concept of animals out of place. These sources tell us something about the perception of the right and wrong place for our animals, respectively. The idea of animals out of place is based on Mary Douglas' concept of meta out of place, uh, which she developed in her 1966 pivotal anthropological work, Purity and Danger. In it, she tackles the ideas, uh, she tackles ideas of purity and relates them to conflicts about proper order. One of her main points is that the concept of dirt is not an absolute, but always relative to an order that can be recreated and maintained by cleaning up and dispelling everything deemed unclean or impure. Conflicts can arise when the order is threatened, either by transgressing, which would be animalities, or by blurring boundaries, which would be ambiguities. And upholding these boundaries means upholding the order. Adapting this idea to animals means that for animals to be described as out of place, they have to disturb a given order, which assigns them a proper place, often described as natural. To give an example, Mary Douglas' classic assertion that dirt is met out of place means that while, for example, soil in a flower pot is at its proper place, even though it is not its natural place. On the kitchen floor, it becomes dirt and has to be cleaned up to reestablish order. A bear who is held in a zoo, also not its natural habitat, becomes a threat to the given order when it manages to escape and can then be described as an animal out of place. Equally so, 
animals who wander into cities in the search for food, as uh, the polar bear showed earlier, they are transgressing their natural habitats and become animals out of place. And oftentimes in these cases, force is employed to reestablish order, for example, by killing the animal. It is worth challenging, challenging the idea of natural habitat or wilderness uh, as the proper place for animals, especially in the context of the Anthropocene, in which almost no part of nature exists unaffected from human interference. Natural habitats, so I'm going to use the term um, uh, in quotes, could then be a place just as much assigned and ideologically constructed by humans as any other, making it necessary at all to uphold these boundaries by force. With reference to the sources I've just presented on capturing and transporting animals, a couple of aspects might point to how animals are perceived as out of place from different perspectives. Arguably, in all of these examples, the animals create a problem because they are perceived to move either on their own or via force outside of their properly assigned place, which you might call the natural habitat. In the case of the farmers, the animals were out of place when advancing onto farmland and threatening the physical safety and the production. They could be conceptualized as anomalities, transgressing the boundaries of animal habitat and human habitat. To reestablish order, the unruly animals were eliminated by being captured for animal hunts. In the arena, they were in the right place, under human control. In the case of Hieropolis, the transitional stage of transporting led to insecurities. Here, the animals are no longer in their natural habitat, but also not yet at their proper place in the arena. They can be seen as ambiguities, blurring the boundaries of spatial attribution. This ambiguity caused concern with the local population. And to add a third point, part of the attraction of animal hunts was their exoticism, which uh, was just alluded to at the end of the um, last talk. And this exoticism to see wild and dangerous animals in the secure environment of the arena that you never, ne might never have seen before. The action of transporting animals over long distances was, from the perspective of the organizers, one that enhanced the prestige of the event. The more exotic, the further, further away the animals came from, the better. So catching them in faraway regions and transporting them throughout half of the empire was very much the point, not a nuisance. I want to move on now to the Christian sources. Late antiquity was a period that saw a massive change in public discourse through the rise of Christianity as the dominant religion. The effect on public entertainment was an increase in expressions of criticism and a shift in tone. The criticism focused mostly on the agitating effect of the spectacles on the spectator. But I want today to talk about a more marginal argument made in the Christian sources that referred very specifically to animal hunts and did not also apply to other forms of spectacles such as uh, chariot races. Through the Christian lens, the removal of animals from their natural habitat meant the removal of animals from their God-given realm. The first substantial critique by a Christian writer of the spectacle stems from Tertullian in the late second century AD. In his polemic, De Spectaculis, Tertullian develops arguments that build on earlier criticism of public entertainment and adds a Christian perspective. A common theme in the text is that Tertullian brings, a, brings up a defense 
of the Stacticus from within the Christian community only to then subsequently refute them. And this is the case as well in the following passage. So the first part is a defense of the Stacticus and the second part is Tertullian's response to it. In the next place, there is no one who fails to produce this excuse that all things were created by God and given to man, as we Christians teach, and that they are really all good, all being the work of a good creator. And that among them, we must reckon all the various things that go to make the public shows, the horse, for example, and the lion, and the strength of body and charm of voice. For if God, who require, requires of us innocence, hates all malice, yes, and every thought of evil, Assuredly, it is certain that whatever he created, he never created to issue an acts which he condemns, even if those acts are performed by means of what he has created. No, for there is no other account to be given of condemnation, but that it is the misuse of God's creation by God's creatures. So the argument in defense of spectacles is that everything involved in the spectacles is made by God, and therefore it cannot be wrong to use them for pleasing purposes. And Tertullian rebuts this by asserting that there is a purpose and, and a will behind God's creation and that the spectacles go against this will. This is an example for the ambiguity within the early Christian community about how to deal with the spectacles. The idea that the creation uh, uh, was made for men to use and to profit from was prevalent. Two centuries after Tertullian, John Chrysostom made a similar point about God's will for his creation, albeit bit more subtly. For those places, he's speaking of um, spectacle venues, for those places too being full of all senseless excitement, train the populace to acquire a merciless and savage and inhuman kind of temper and practice them in seeing men torn in pieces and blood flowing and the ferocity of wild beasts confounding all things. The fights between humans and animals are here characterized as a subversion of the God-given order. This order places humans on top and an artificially created situation in which the human body can fall victim to an animal confounds this natural hierarchy. An argument more specifically based on spatial subversion or disorder can be found in the De Gubernazione Dei by Sairian of Marseille. That such things may take place, the whole world is ransacked. Great is the care with which the search is carried on and perfected. Hidden retreats are entered, pathless ravines are searched, impenetrable forests traversed, the cloud-bearing alps are climbed, the depths of valleys plumbed, and in order that the flesh of man may be devoured by, by wild beasts, the last secrets of the world of nature are revealed. So Zalvian includes the practice of hunting, catching, and transporting animals from remote regions to the urban centers of the empire into his critique of spectacles, which is unusual. The way he phrases it, um, in the Im imagery of secrets being revealed, he insinuates that this is a forbidden intrusion into the opaque aspects of God's creation. In their quest to acquire animals for the animal hunts, humans transgress their proper space and penetrate the realm of the animals. Removing animals from their realm also meant an upheaval of the God-given hierarchy, which was then materialized in the fights of animals against humans in the arena. But there are also examples, so animal, animals can also give examples of how the proper order works. An anecdote from Augustine 
uses the imagery of an animal fight to exemplify God's righteous order. He tells the story of how he stumbled upon a fight between two roosters. Augustine sees beauty in the brutal fight as it represents the natural hierarchy based on God's will. And I'm uh, quoting, for what do the eyes of lovers of truth and beauty not encompass? Where do they not search through to, be see, to see beauty's reason signaling something dense? Reason which rules and governs all things, the knowing and the unknowing things, and which attracts the eager followers in every way and wherever she commands that she be sought. Whence indeed, and where can she not give a signal? As what to be seen in those fowls, the, lower, the lowered heads stretch forward, neck plumage distended, the lusty thrust, and such weary pairings, and in every motion of the irrational animals, nothing unseemly, precisely because another reason from on, from on high rules over all things. And later in this passage, Augustine, Augustine also recognizes the spectacular and entertaining aspect of the fight. So when comparing this anecdote to the critique of animal hunts by Tertullian and John Chrysostom uh, and Salvian, and also to Augustine's own criticism of Roman-style games, we can see that the cockfight is depicted favorably because, first of all, animals of the same species fight against each other. Second of all, there are no human handlers. The fight is a spontaneous or natural occurrence. And third of all, the animals are in their natural habitat or better, at their assigned place. The two roosters fight each other to determine, in the eyes of Augustine, where each one of them stands in the natural hierarchy, and thus the fight visualizes and materializes God's order. To conclude, um, in the non-Christian sources, worries about animals out of place are based on them transgressing boundaries from their natural habitat onto farmland or blurring boundaries in the transitional stage as kept animals in the city. Their intrusion of farmland, the threat of physical harm and their costly presence in the city provoke measures to eliminate the animals from these spaces. The animal hunts themselves, however, are not seen as a disturbance of order, even if there human fighters were regularly hurt or killed by white animals. Instead, they reestablish order by eliminating threats to lives and livelihoods of the farmers. In the Christian sources, the animal hunts are seen as an affront against the God-given hierarchy of his creation, with human beings being pitted against animals. For this purpose, animals were taken out of the natural environment, likewise a violation of God's order. The human interference in nature, the forceful transgression of boundaries between natural habitat and human settlement is seen as the problem. In terms of animals out of space, we can thus see how transgressive animals created different problems within different systems. The systems have in common that they are based on the belief of a natural hierarchy and the general superiority of humans within this hierarchy. In both systems, human safety is prioritized. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much for a very interesting talk, Constanza. Um, uh, we already have one question and I'll just read that out. Is there a significant difference in this period between Christian and secular sources about when and where an animal is out of place? Um, yeah, that was a bit the point I was hoping to make that um, the difference in uh, these different systems of thought, even though I wouldn't like, 
completely separate them. It's just um, uh, more the uh, basically categorization of sources um, that in from a Christian point of view, the um, taking animals to transport them into the city is um, kind of, uh, yeah, is against God's will. Why from a maybe more material point of view, more secure, more everyday point of view, which is not necessarily non-Christian in late antiquity, um, it is uh, a, a relief of a threat. So taking wild animals away from their natural habitat or from, from a place where they're, where they're um, likely to transgress into uh, human settlements is seen as something positive. So I would say that's the most, um, yeah, most important difference. Okay, thank you. Um, there's another question that's just come in. Just a comment. Oh, okay, okay. Hold on a couple. Just a comment. Thank you, Costanza. It makes me wonder we need to reflect more on our own transgression and movement into animal territories through anthropogenic activity. We are intruders, not them. Uh, we are the threat and great talk. So that's just a, a nice comment for you. And then another one. Great talk. Uh, do you detect differences in the public in, um, imperial ideology behind the organizations of spectacles or hunts as the emperors became Christian? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think um, it's just it's just full of ambiguities because um, the emperors, of course, uh, have kind of have to um, work on two fronts there. They have to um, uh, present themselves as Christian and have to appease um, Christian authorities to gain power, but they also still have this um, these urban populations who very much are um, used to spectacles and also demand spectacles to be given. So, I, um, yeah, that's something I'm working on at the moment. Um, it's interesting to see in laws how differently um, they are worded when they are directed at different groups. So, um, for example, there is one law that is. Um, about bishops attend or bishops, priests, deacons attending um, spectacles and animal hunts as well, uh, which is very much full of all this rhetoric about how terrible these games are. And um, he, we couldn't even imagine that a bishop would uh, actually do it and go to these terrible games. But if they do, please don't. So this is basically the gist of the law. And um, at the same time, the emperor is, of course, also giving games. So yeah. He is issuing these laws, but at the same time uh, is um, editor, basically. And, and on the other hand, there are laws that um, tell, for example, consuls what to show in their consular games. So it's very specific um, what they have to kind of, uh, yeah, bring to the table for the urban population. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. To access more podcasts from the workshop, Check out the Humanities Institute's podcast channels on Apple, SoundCloud and on Spotify.